Hi, my name's Grant Fishbook, and I am honored to be the lead teaching pastor here at Christ the King Church in Bellingham, Washington. Thank you so much for choosing to access this online content today. We really hope you'll enjoy this message. One of our values here at Christ the King is biblical face-to-face -face community. And so while we are so excited that you joined us today online, I really want to encourage you. Make sure that this is never a placement for face-to-face -face biblical community. Your story matters, you matter, and we want to see you get connected in a local church. Now, if you're here in our area, we would love to have you join us at any one of our five campuses. But if you find yourself outside of the Bellingham area, we really want you to get connected into a local church. So we hope and pray that that happens for you very, very soon. glad that you're here. If I haven't met you before, my name is Grant. Glad that you have chosen to join us. The fact that you are here three days after your turkey coma was in full force and there is a Seahawks game this morning at 10 a.m., your godliness is astounding to me as you have entered into the room. I thank you for being here because if you weren't here, I'd be all by myself and that would just be awkward. So we're going to wrap up week number three of our series called Hope. I'd like to take you back to the 1980s. I worked as a camp counselor at a place called Camp Cedarwood back in the 1980s. The 1980s were the days of mullets and varnays and pink polo shirts with the collars popped and a band called Wham. How many of you remember? How many of you need to repent before Jesus that you participated in those days, all right? My job at camp in the 1980s was to share Jesus, teach archery, drive a pontoon boat back and forth to the cliff diving location where we took kids, and to make sure that the same number of kids that checked into camp actually went home. That was my job description, and I loved those summers. They were wonderful times. Driving the pontoon boat was a faith-building experience because there is a word for an underpowered pontoon boat on a windy Manitoba lake. The word is sail. Okay? It becomes a sail. It doesn't matter how big the engine is. It just doesn't matter. Wherever the wind blows, that's where that pontoon boat is going. Doesn't matter how skilled the captain is. It just doesn't matter. You're going where the wind is blowing. That's just the way it is. So one afternoon, I've got a group of kids that I take cliff diving. That's what we called it. It was a safe and sanctioned activity where counselors could pick up children in middle school and throw them off of cliffs. And it was just our way of getting even for everything they did to us during the week. And I take a group of kids over there. They're being thrown off of the cliffs. It's fun. And then I begin to notice that the wind is picking up. And I think to myself, self, you need to get these kids back to camp because pretty soon you're going to have a sail full of children and it's not going to go well for you. 
So we loaded up and we set off. We untied from the rocks and we set off across the lake. We got about halfway across the lake and the wind really starts to pick up. And I begin to realize that we're not going forwards. We're going backwards towards the very rocks that we had just left. And I know one thing, rocks and metal do not get along. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't really know what to do. So I did what I thought was the most important thing to do. I pointed the nose of the boat into the wind. I gunned the little engine that couldn't as hard as it possibly could. And I ran to the front of the boat, hoping that there was an anchor up there. We never used an anchor because we always just pulled into the rocks, tied off the boat, went cliff diving, and then came back and, and went back home again without incident. I had never checked the boat for an anchor. And when I got to the front of that boat, I will tell you, that little tiny piece of metal that insignificant little thing that they called, that sorry excuse for an anchor, it apologized to me as I threw it into the water because I knew it was not going to help me at all. That anchor did absolutely nothing. We continued to move backwards towards the rocks. We were dragging anchor in the truest form of the word. And I am just so thankful that God in his providence at some point in the, in the past put a log at the bottom of that lake. Because right before we hit the rocks, that anchor grabbed a hold of a log and it held. And the nose of the boat swung around and we just sat there for a little while, breathing, thanking God, and waiting for the wind to die down so we could get back home to camp. Let me share you some scripture that I hope brings you some hope today. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. And we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm insecure. The writer of Hebrews has been ramping up for six chapters to get to that verse. He's been talking about the supremacy of Jesus, how Jesus is a better priest with a better access, with a better track record, and a better promise into a better sanctuary. He has been pointing in that direction for six chapters. He has been lifting and elevating Jesus as the answer to every question and laying out this spiritually superior resume. And then in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, he takes a great big deep breath, and then he says these words, we have this hope, is an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Which means this, good news for the followers of Jesus in the room. You have an answer to storms and pressure and stress and change. Because if you're following Christ today, you have a faith in a God who calms storms and can anchor us to an unwavering belief that no matter what happens around us or to us, that that anchor will hold. You have 7,000 promises in Scripture that say you're going to be okay. You have the track record of history with God always keeping His promises and never lying or breaking His word. And that is what holds you in a world that, let's be honest, is a little chaotic. I know many of you have received Christ as your Savior. I know many of you are discovering this world called Lordship, where you submit everything inside of you to the Lordship of Christ. Many of you have gone public in that baptismal tank, telling the entire world, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God through salvation. Many of you have gone public, but I still have a question this morning. Do you have an anchor for your soul? firm and secure. Now, some of you would respond to my question and go, how would I know if I do? Well, let me lay it out for you biblically as best I can. The Bible says for those that have that anchor, you have something called a blessed assurance. 
And it means this, in the storms of life, you actually experience something that the Bible says is like a peace that surpasses all human understanding. It means this, if you have an anchor that does not move, it's firm and secure, when the storms around you increase, you actually become calmer. When the world becomes more chaotic, you actually take it down a couple of notches. You become more peaceful even though storms are swirling around you because you're trusting that you have an anchor that is firm and can hold and is secure and it allows you to be able to look at the condition of the world and not get all freaked out. So I've got a question to the so-called mature people in Christ today. Does that describe you? Are you more calm? Are you more peaceful? Are you more at ease because you know something that the world may not know? You have an anchor. And it holds you firm and secure. This morning, I'd like to share with you four anchor stories. Three Old Testament, one from outside of the Bible, that I believe will illustrate and show us what it means to have an anchor firm and secure. The first anchor story, Old Testament story of Job. Job was a godly man. His life got turned completely upside down. In a matter of days, Job lost everything. He lost his children. He lost his family. He lost his business. And he lost his health. The Bible actually says it got so bad for Job that we find him being reduced to a a smoldering pile of humanity, sitting on an ash heap, scraping the boils off of his skin with a piece of broken pottery. That's a pretty sad expression of someone's life. It's a heartbreaking story, and it actually leaves you questioning if you read the entire book of Job. You end up asking a legitimate question, where in the world did Job's anchor go? Job's wife wanted to know, where did your anchor go? She's often described in the story as heartless, and she comes to Job one day and makes a recommendation because of everything that he's lost. Job chapter 2, verse 9, his wife comes and says, here's my recommendation, curse God and die. Curse God and die. Now, some people would say, boy, she's just not very encouraging. You know what? I don't think she's heartless at all. I'm wondering if she's actually one of the most loving people in the entire book because she just wants the pain of her husband to stop. Just just stop, Job. Just stop fighting. Let the boat hit the rocks. Just drown. It seems like a better alternative than what we're experiencing. Right now, we've lost all of our kids. We've lost our houses. We've lost our livelihood. We've lost everything. In spite of her recommendation, though, Job keeps breathing. And then his friends show up. The friends of Job are interesting. They do amazing until they start talking. And then it all goes south from there. And at one point in a discord... And this beautiful little discourse, his friend Bildad actually gets one thing right. Job 8 verse 13, he says this, such is the destiny of all who forget God, so perishes the hope of the godless. Let's be honest, okay? We live in a culture that's forgetting God. I don't think it's wrong to say that. I think that's actually just real. And sometimes, even as followers of Christ, we find ourselves following in, in this drift that just begins to happen. We put our hope in money, thinking that that's going to bring us security. We put our hope in stuff, and we try to stockpile things. And when we run out of room, we put it in storage units. We think the government is somehow going to bail us out. So our faith gets tested every four years about whether or not we're going to get our people in as opposed to somebody else's people. We, and then we put our hope in, in other human beings. Has anybody noticed that all of those things ultimately disappoint you? 
People disappoint you. Money disappoints you. Government structure, all this stuff, it just disappoints. Pastor Rick Warren said these words in an amazing message. He said, when a culture is drifting, this is what happens. Wealth is idolized. Truth is minimized. Life is trivialized. Media is sexualized. Consciences are desensitized. Education is secularized. Races are polarized. Politics are scandalized. Morals and ethics are liberalized. Christ, crime is sensationalized. Sin is glamorized. Law is paralyzed. Christians are demonized. And God is marginalized. True, right? So the culture just keeps drifting. And it's just like Job's story. Job's struggling. His friends are wavering. His wife is pleading. But Job doesn't move. Why? Because he's got an anchor for his soul. Firm and secure. I want you to listen to his response to all of the heartbreak as Job speaks about God in Job 13 verse 15. So this is in the middle of all of this stuff. And Job says this, though he slay me, modern translation, even if God kills me, yet I will hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. One of my friends, Dave Browning, who's a pa- former pastor from Christ the King, was diagnosed with a brain tumor. As a church, we watched Dave walk through that journey. He posted something on Facebook one time that I thought was so unbelievably beautiful. He goes, no matter how this ends, it will go well for me. You know what allows you to say that? When you have an anchor that holds you firm and secure. Job would say, it may appear that I'm dragging anchor, but I'm going to put my hope in God because God gives and God takes away. My hope still says, blessed be the name of the Lord. I think we can all say this because we know it to be true. It is easy to say, blessed be when your world is perfect. But can you say it when everything hurts? There's only one way to say, blessed be the name of the Lord when you're losing everything. And that's if you have an anchor, firm and secure. Another anchor story, number two. Old Testament story of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet. He watched his culture drift into exile. Jeremiah was God's mouthpiece, but the people didn't listen. Instead of wrapping themselves around the promises of God, they actually cut the rope to the anchor in disobedience, and they prayed they had an incredible price. You know, and you'd think that, that that job failure, not actually getting the people to hear the word of God would crush this prophet, but it didn't. It did make him cry, though. That's why Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. I often wondered, if you're a prophet who's emotional, not that this is personal for me at all, (laughs) pastor prophet, and you cry daily about the conditions of the world that you see around you, where in the world do you find hope? Well, I started searching scripture and I found Jeremiah's hope in the most unusual of places. It's actually wedged into the book of Lamentations, which is a book about grief and sorrow and hurt and pain and hopelessness. And Jeremiah, this weeping prophet, says this, Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. Underline this next sentence. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him, 
Don't put your hope anywhere other than Christ. You're going to end up being disappointed. And, and, and Jeremiah just figured that out. Every single morning, God would give him new mercy, new grace, new faithfulness, a proven track record. And that's what kept him going and kept him talking. Sometimes you just need a little lift. I got mine this past Monday morning. I'm going to use the name of the business because I think they're worth actually talking about. Monday morning, I went to Pacific Cataract and Laser Institute to get a thing cut out of the corner of my eye, okay? I had a papilloma, and my doctor said, you should really get that taken off. So he referred me to Pacific Cataract. That's where I went. Monday morning, I was in the waiting room by myself. The young lady came and said, you need to fill out this paperwork. So I filled out the paperwork and more paperwork and more paperwork and more paperwork and more paperwork, and 39 signatures later, I was finally ready to get done what needed to be done. And just before she took this mountain of paper away from me, she asked me a question that honestly shocked me. She said, would you be open to having the doctor pray with you before your procedure? Amen. What? I said, yeah, <laughs> on one condition. He prays for me, I get to pray for him. She said, I think that would be great. So I did. They got me all prepped. And before Dr. Marshall Ford started sticking needles into my eyelids, he prayed for me, and I prayed for him, and I felt a whole lot better about that surgical procedure by the time we were done. Hope began to rise in the room. I thought it was fantastic. And I'll tell you what, I was hopeful because I found a group of people, a group of Jesus followers who apparently are still bold enough to welcome people into a place of prayer in the midst of a political climate that says that's not politically correct. I love the fact that I found a place in town that said, I don't care what's correct or not. We're going to pray because that's what we need to do. I just thought that was absolutely fantastic. I was so encouraged by that, right? And then on Tuesday, I went back for my follow-up. Same lady sitting behind the desk. And I just, I had to ask her. So, do you offer prayer to all of your patients? Or is that just like a pastor thing? Right? You know? She's like, no, we offer it to every patient who walks through our doors. I said, that's amazing. I said, can I ask you another question? How many people accept your offer to pray? She said, we normally have about 35 procedures a day. She goes, on average, between 32 and 33 people will say, I would love it if my doctor prayed with me before we did the procedure. I was so touched by their hopeful boldness. I was so touched by the fact they were willing to take a risk in order to bring Jesus into those procedures. I was so unbelievably grateful and thankful. I, I mean, to me, on that Monday morning, that was God's mercy. And what a gift. It was a great way to start the day to be reminded that the Lord is good to those whose hope is in him. Another anchor story. Let's go with another Old Testament one. How about Joseph? Some of you just said goodbye to your family. They were here for Thanksgiving. Some of you have the kind of family you stood at the door and just like, off you go. Just glad you were here. Glad you're leaving. Have a turkey sandwich. Back you go, right? Right? <laughs> Joseph would have been that way. Joseph's family put the fun in dysfunction. I mean, you read the story for yourself. It's incredible. Joseph's brothers, they fake his death, break their father's heart, sell their brother into slavery. 
While he's in slavery, Joseph is falsely accused of sexual abuse by his boss's wife. Ends up in jail for 11 years. That's a long time. 11 years, Joseph rots in jail. But he doesn't waver because he's got an anchor, firm and secure. Joseph remains anchored, and God begins to open doors in the craziest way. Joseph has a gift. He can interpret dreams. And one day, the head of the country, the head of the empire that he is under captivity to, actually has a need for a dream interpretation. And Joseph walks through that door, and over a period of time, in an incredible story, Joseph begins this slow upward climb that ends up with him becoming the second most powerful man in the most powerful empire in history at that particular time. As the story goes, a famine breaks out. People are starving. And Joseph, being in charge of all of the food that has been gathered into Egypt, one day comes to work and standing in front of him asking for food are the same brothers who sold him into slavery. And Joseph has a moment when he could have unleashed a storm of revenge, but instead he turns to the God who anchored him through the whole journey and says this in Genesis 50 verse 20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. The storm of jail couldn't budge him. The storm of false accusation couldn't budge him. The story of family dysfunction couldn't budge him. The temptation of revenge couldn't budge him because Joseph was anchored in a God both firmly and securely. I love those three stories. Gives me hope today. For the last one, we're going to step outside of the pages of Scripture for just a moment. I'd like to tell you a classic old story that comes from outside of your Bible, but you already participated in the story today because you sang it earlier this morning. The fourth blank in your outline, I'd like, to write you, I'd like for you to write the name Horatio Spafford. Horatio Gates Spafford was born in New York on October 20th, 1828. But it was within the confines of a city called Chicago that he actually made his fortune. Horatio was well known for his clear Christian testimony. He and his wife Anna were active in their church. Their home was always open to visitors and they counted among their friends a world-famous evangelist named Dwight L. Moody. They were blessed with five kids, considerable wealth. Horatio was a lawyer. He owned most of inner city Chicago in the early 1800s. But just like Job, just like massive blessing came into his life, so did massive tragedy. When their son Horatio Jr. was four years old, he contracted scarlet fever and he died. Then only a year later, in October of 1871, a massive fire swept through Chicago. Some of you have heard of that great fire. Devastated the city, burned to the ground almost everything that Horatio owned. That fire took the lives of 300 people. Over 100,000 were left homeless. And even though they could have fled the city, Horatio and Anna decided to stay. And they helped other people who had lost everything just like them. They wanted to do it for one reason. They wanted to help bring hope and the message of Jesus to their broken city. Two years later in 1873, Spafford made a decision that his family needed a break. And on the invitation of that famous evangelist, D.L. Moody, 
they were invited to go to Europe. And Horatio actually was delayed because of some business that resulted because of the fire. So he made a decision to send his wife and his four girls ahead on a ship. So Anna and his four daughters, their 11-year-old was also named Anna, nine-year-old Margaret Lee, five-year-old Elizabeth, and two-year-old Tanetta all set off ahead of their husband and dad. On October the 22nd, or November the 22nd, 1873, while crossing the Atlantic, their ship was struck by an iron sailing ship and it sunk in 12 minutes. 226 people lost their lives, including all four of Horatio's daughters. His four baby girls were taken. Remarkably, his wife Anna actually survived. They found her holding on to a piece of wood, unconscious. She was evacuated to Cardiff, South Wales. When she got there, she sent a telegram home to her husband that included two words, saved alone. When Horatio got Anna's message, he jumped on a ship and headed to be with his wife. On the voyage over one day, the captain actually summoned Horatio to the bridge of the ship and said, in a few moments, Mr. Spafford, we'll be crossing over the place where your four daughters passed away. I just thought you'd want to know. According to the story, Horatio stood on the bow by himself for a few minutes, then went down to his cabin and wrote these words. It is well with my soul. Horatio's faith in God was tested, but it didn't falter because he had an anchor. He later wrote to Anna's sister, on Thursday last, we passed over the spot where the ship went down in mid-ocean and where the waters are three miles deep, but I do not think of my dear ones there. No, they are safe. My dear little lambs. After Anna was rescued, she was speaking with her pastor who actually survived the same shipwreck. And he wrote words that he heard Anna say after everything she'd been through. She said, God gave me four daughters, now they have been taken from me. And someday I will understand why. She said, it's easy to be grateful and good when you have so much, but take care that you are not a fair weather friend of God. Knowing the story makes the words sound different, doesn't it? When peace like a river attendeth my way, when it's all going good, when sorrows like sea billows roll, when it's all going bad, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say it is well. It is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. That's the rope that holds us to the anchor, the sacrifice of Jesus. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. I grew up in church. I know those verses. I could sing them to you backwards and forwards. I'd never heard verses four and five before. 
now that you know the story, listen to Horatio Spafford's words. For me, be it Christ, be it Christ, hence to live. If Jordan above me shall roll, no pang shall be mine, for in death as in life thou wilt whisper thy peace to my soul. But Lord, tis for thee, for thy coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. O trump of the angel, O voice of the Lord. Blessed hope, blessed rest from my soul. I better read the last one or the church folks are never going to forgive me. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend even so it is well with my soul. So we've come full circle. I'm going to ask you the question again. Do you have an anchor for your soul, firm and secure? If you do, you should be calmer and more peaceful than any other human being on the face of this planet because no matter what happens around you or what happens to you, it will end well for you because you have an anchor. All month long, we've been doing this thing called the CTK Blessing. It's an opportunity for us as a church to show up in the middle of somebody's tragedy and say, it can be well. I know it hurts, but it can be well for you. Every week, we put these little green envelopes in your program. It's not a little green envelope. It's somebody else's miracle. I've said it for three weeks. I'm going to say it again. I hope and pray you never need the blessing. But I hope and pray if you ever do, if, if you ever experience the pain of a Job, a Jeremiah, a Joseph, or a Horatio, I hope and pray there's a group of crazy generous people in Bellingham, Washington, that are willing to say, we can't walk with you in all of the pain, but we can be your hope. And this can help. Monday morning was a good day for me because of Pacific Cataract. Would you like your doctor to pray with you? <laughs> yes, I would. It was even better because I got back to work and Shauna Walton, who's in charge of our finances here, she came up to my office and knocked and said, uh, Grant, would you like a trophy? You bet I would. And she handed me a small scan of a green envelope. And these are the words that are written on the outside of it. It says, thank you for helping my family. When we had nothing, this church continues to be a blessing to my family through all of the prayer. And then these beautiful words, may this help another. And inside was a small gift because somebody who received your blessing paid it forward. And it's not the size of the gift, it's the size of the sacrifice. And I believe that because of this, the God of the universe sat up on the edge of his throne and said, that's an anchor, firm and secure. So we have an opportunity to bless people and it doesn't have any, this is not between me and you, this is between you and the God who is your anchor. I hope and pray we'll be those kind of people this kind of people so that we can continue to bring hope into a world that honestly seems a little out of control these days. Whether it's through the farm 
or our community partners or one of the pastors showing up on somebody's doorstep saying, I know you're hurting. Here's a little hope because God loves you and so does your church. We all get to participate and while the envelopes are going to go after this week, I want you to know they're available all year long at the back of this room. And if God ever prompts you, I hope and pray that when you make a sacrifice that you can still say, it is well with my soul. May you be hope-filled today because you have an anchor, firm and secure. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for this morning. God, on the heels of Thanksgiving, may we be people filled with gratitude each and every day. And may you and you alone be our anchor, holding us both firm and secure. God, I thank you for an opportunity to be here today. I pray that uh, our praises will have touched your heart because we see you as a God who is our anchor and holds us firm and secure. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Amen. Amen. Thanks again for watching. We're so glad that you joined us today. Once again, we hope you'll get involved in biblical face-to-face community wherever you happen to be today. If you'd like more information about Christ the King Community Church, if you'd like to give online, or if you'd like to submit a prayer request, or even get connected in a small group, you can find out more about us at ctk.church.